and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. I'm Alina Jenkins, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Anik de Brown. Anik is Professor of Self-Regulation in Higher Education and Vice Director of the School of Health Professions Education at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Her research centers around questions of metacognitive and self-regulatory processes in learning, and she's particularly fascinated by how subjective learning experiences shape self-regulation of learning and how effective instructional design and strategy training can support self-regulation. Anik, welcome. Thank you so much. So I'd love to take this opportunity to ask you how you came to this point. And from if you think about the early stages of your career and to where you are now, what set you on this journey? Yeah. So when I started doing research, I was very fascinated into how expertise develops. How do people become really good at what they're doing? I studied how chess players particularly develop. And this interesting thing about chess is that there's a very clear output. There's a very clear performance indicator, um, ELO ratings, uh, chess ratings. So I studied to what extent intelligence plays a role, to what extent practice plays a role, um, deliberate practice particularly, very conscious practice dedicated to improving your weaknesses and understanding your strengths. And I like doing that research. It was very fascinating talking to chess players, examining young chess players and how they developed, why some quit, why others didn't. And while doing this research, I realized that was what was setting apart the elite players from the less elite players was their reflective abilities, their metacognitive abilities. So the ones who are very good, those were the ones who are, were also very much aware of their strengths and weaknesses and had clear plans on how to work on those weaknesses. So from that part on, I, I started getting interested in metacognition, not so much from the elite perspective, but mostly from the more novice perspective. So what we learn from experts, what does that tell us about how to teach novices, how to teach students in higher education specifically? And there I'd learned that typically students and people in general are not very good at metacognitive monitoring, at understanding how they're doing. For example, if you ask students to estimate how they will do on an upcoming test, especially the ones who fail, overestimate how they will do. And that really intrigued me, intrigued me. How does that come about, this overestimation? And there's also a group of students who underestimate, who are underconfident, who are doing really well, but they don't see it that they're doing really well. So this is how my research into metacognition got started, understanding that process and wanting to also improve the process. Yeah. So how are you now hoping that you're going to take this research further? What are you hoping to do with this and what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. So metacognitive abilities, self-regulatory abilities, so knowing how to plan, how to set goals, how to achieve those goals are very important. They have been important. They have, have, have gained more interest recently, also because of the COVID pandemic, where students were much more confined to solitary learning environments, to working online. Uh, it was building a lot of pressure on their self-regulatory abilities. And we saw students struggling. We saw that some students are much better at it than others. And it's typically a minority who are naturally good at it. I don't think they're naturally good at it, but they came across the right conditions to develop these um, uh, competencies. 
And I think it's very important to, to think about how we can foster these abilities more generally in students in higher education, but also earlier on already. Now, we know relatively little about how to do so, about how to foster these abilities. And I'm very interested in understanding this better. Um, how can we design learning environments? How can we design instruction so as to foster these abilities, taking into account that these are typically developed contextually? So this is not something you teach them in a separate course, like, you know, this is how to plan, this is how to mm -hmm. monitor. We've been trying to do so. It's been, it's, it's being done, of course. Um, there's some effects of that, but not very generalizable. So how do we embed this within real life education, making sure that it actually helps their learning, but also that it transfers to other learning conditions beyond formal education. Mm. It sounds like there's lots of challenges that you're facing in it. Like how do you design this? There's still lots of questions that you're asking yourself. Are some of these answers to those questions becoming clearer for you? Where do you feel that you need to really focus on perhaps in the, in the short term to try and answer those questions. Yeah. So, so one main focus that we've chosen over the last couple of years and our research and my research group is focusing on what we term effort monitoring and effort regulation. So if you look at self-regulation, how do students set goals? What do they want to do today? What do they want to do tomorrow? How do they make sure that they are going to pass an exam? Then knowing where to put the effort and when to put the effort is a very important part of that. Now, the difficulty is that typically conditions where you learn a lot, conditions that foster learning, are also the conditions that cost high effort. And it's kind of paradoxical because we tend to feel as human beings, if something is effortful, then probably this is, I'm not doing well, this I should be doing something else, or I'll give up easily. Um, we call these conditions desirable difficulties. So they are difficult, but actually they're fostering your learning, especially on the long term. Now, we know that students are not inclined to engage in desirable difficulties. How do we get them to understand that this is what they should be doing? And how do we get them to choose and persist in these desirable difficulties? So we want to understand this mechanism of effort monitoring and effort regulation better. We've been trying out some different instructional design environments that, you know, try to foster their choose choices for desirable difficulties and um, for them to continue choosing these kinds of learning conditions. Mm. So tell me about this in these instructional design environments then. So what, what have you been discovering? Yeah. So if you look at the, the context of desirable difficulties, the complexity is that naturally we would want to avoid them because somehow our system is telling us this is not what you're supposed to be doing. This is not feeling well. So how do you get students to engage in them? We see this as a sort of a dual approach. So on one hand, you have to explain it to them. There's no way they can figure this out entirely by themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe a very small minority does. And we call this a theory-based approach. So we instruct them on it before engaging in these desirable difficulties. We tell them, well, actually, these conditions work. They feel like they're not working, but effort is good in this context. And then we combine it with what we call an experiential approach, where we actually have them experience the desirable difficulty and we have them reflect on the desirable difficulty while engaging with, um, for example, a learning strategy that is um, effective but difficult, like um, interleaving your learning. So not doing all your learning in one go, but mixing in uh, the different uh, types of topics that you need to study. And this combination of theory-based um, instructions and 
experiential, experience-based instructions, those seem to be particularly helpful now in our first studies, our first uh, data is showing that in convincing students to engage more in these desirable difficulties. Mm. Where are the moments so far that you've maybe felt you've come up against a brick wall or sort of the, the, the bigger challenges that both you and your team are facing? Have you had sort of like these, these frustrating moments of how do I get past this? Yes. Yeah. So I think our, our biggest challenge at the moment is that we can make this work within, let's say, a controlled environment. It's still a, an authentic learning task. It's something that could be learning in real life as well. But it's, of course, not, you know, your everyday learning of a student going to the library and a student not having slept well and a student, you know, um, having, a, having a day off. So how do we incorporate this actual authentic learning environment and show that even in this environment, we can get students to engage more in these desirable difficulties? So I think this translation of what we're finding in a more controlled environment to real life it's methodologically challenging because we would like to just observe them, for example, in the library, those kinds of things, or we would want him to, we would want to use apps and measure what they're exactly doing at different points during the day, how they're feeling, etc. We've been trying out some of these things, but these are typically very noisy environments, so mm. makes it harder to draw conclusions. Now, the very controlled conditions, of course, it's easier to find, you know, cause and effect relations. Um, but we also feel like, well, maybe these students are not taking this home and actually are able to apply it. We know it's really hard. Even in a controlled environment, we can convince them that they will also do it in, in real life, so to say. I've been doing some um, podcasts and research recently around neurodiversity. And I'm just wondering if, if that has come into play into your thought processes um, when you're sort of, you know, building these these situations is to, you know, understanding how Everybody learns differently. Uh, do you do you take this into consideration? Is people's background any sort of uh, anybody who is neurodiverse? Yeah. So we haven't specifically looked yet into, uh, let's say, uh, um, students with particular diagnosis, uh, ADHD, autism, etc. Mm -hmm. I think it's we're at a too early stage to do so now. So if we look at we've looked just at students in general. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps some of them have ADHD of autism or autism, but we haven't asked. What we do ask for is exactly why they do the things they do. So we mm -hmm. ask them, okay, what would you like to do right now? Choose for a desirable difficulty or not? And why would you or would you not do that? And by doing so, different patterns of reasoning emerge between students. We see that some students directly grasp what we're trying to tell them. Some already did before we told them. And some are really resistant to understanding or and in, in incorporating our internalizing our uh, ideas and our suggestions. Now, that's really interesting because it might have repercussions also for instruction. Mm. I think that's another very interesting question that we don't have a clear answer to because intuitively you would say if there's different reasons for students to choose for one or the other to behave in different ways, then instruction should be adapted towards it. But actually, maybe that's not always the case. Maybe even if there's very different reasons for students to do things, maybe if there's great neurodiversity, they can still profit from the same instruction because the basis of what they need to understand, namely that it's good to engage in these desirable difficulties, even if they're more effortful and they will help you for long-term learning. 
maybe that's enough for the majority of the students. So I find it's a very important question, just a research mm -hmm. question as well, scientific question. To what extent does instruction need to be adapted to the student? And what characteristics of the student require adaptation? I think that's an important question in educational science these days that we're running into. Mm. Where do you where do you hope to be in let's let's maybe let's fast forward in our time machine to five years from now. Where do you hope this will lead you? What are you really hoping to achieve yeah. from this research? Yeah, most at the moment, most of all I hope to have a consistent funding base to be able to continue this research because that's the, mm. the 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 difficulty of of doing scientific research you never know what funds you will have in the next couple of years i'm good for now but i need to work on being able to continue this i would really very much like to you know, deepen this research on effort monitoring regulation. I really feel like we've barely scratched the surface. And um, I would like to look into this aspect of adaptation. To what extent should we be adapting um, to students' needs and, and characteristics? Or to what extent is a more general instruction important? I, I think technology plays a huge role here as well. Um, I'm convinced that these uh, self-regulation support, these instructions need to be contextualized as much as possible, they need to be integrated in authentic education, in domain education as much as possible. Um, but how to do so, I think technology plays a huge role there because we want, let's say, a continuous cycle of uh, feedback to students. I mean, that's the beauty of technology, of course. We can provide much more individualized feedback, and I think education can greatly profit from it. But again, there, we've barely scratched the surface on how to do so. Mm -hmm. So that will be fantastic if we can get funding to to dive into that. Yeah. Um, through having done these podcasts, Anik, over the last time that we did them and this session as well, is that I'm really getting this sense of how important mentorship is in your field. And I know that Hank Schmidt has been a mentor for you. And the last time that you were here at Karolinska was when Hank was winning the prize. So I just wanted to sort of hear your thoughts on your, you know, how Hank helped you and supported you and your ideas on mentorship. Yeah. Yeah. Hank was a huge, uh, continues to have a huge influence on everything I do. While on the plane over, it was so, so wonderful to think about. It was 18 years ago, which is an enormous amount of time. And now being here in this context and having this opportunity, it's, it's truly, truly amazing. I'd never thought I'd be here, um, for this reason now. So Hank, Hank provides a perfect combination of high level content knowledge and showing how important that is, keeping up with the literature, knowing what is out there, being critical of what is out there, while at the same time, giving me the sense that I could do it all, mm -hmm. giving this sense of trust and confidence. Like I, I, I mean, I was, when I was here, I was a second or third year PhD student also teaching in the new psychology program at Erasmus University. I had no clue what I was doing, but Hank was passing by the door and he was giving thumbs up and nodding. And I so desperately needed that. And I think that has helped me tremendously in everything I did and also dealing with rejection. Rejection is part of academia. It's a big part of it. So if you struggle with rejection, then it's going to be hard. Uh, I did struggle, definitely, and I continue to do so every time a grant gets rejected or something doesn't work out. Um, but knowing that there's, you know, another opportunity and there's an opportunity to learn from the rejection, 
I think that's also something I, I really learned from him and just because of his confidence in, in me. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a massive thing, isn't it? And we've been talking about this kind of this idea of inner critic and, and you know, so many people have it. And even at this level in your career, there's still that, gosh, I've been rejected and the immediately, immediate response is, oh, you know, like that I'm so disappointed. So you mentioned there about always thinking about there perhaps being an opportunity. Is, is that perhaps your advice to people listening? How do you deal with those moments of rejection? Because inevitably yeah. they're going to be there throughout your career. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's always easy to say, don't take it personal because we do, we do take it personal because if you want something really bad and especially if, if it's a small chance, high grant, which, which will give you lots of opportunities to do research and meet new people and hire great uh, researchers to work with. Of course, you invested everything that you had into it. So it is personal. But at the same time, as I said also, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a situation in which you can learn, where there's a lot of learning opportunity. And I've, I've noticed that if you can put aside this or have it sink in, have this feeling of, you know, I, I just feel personally rejected. I don't like whoever uh, was reviewing this and they were absolutely wrong. Give it some time to sink in, then put it aside and have another good look and really dive into what is expected of you. What are the constraints of the grant that you are writing for? And try to accommodate that as much as possible and try to put yourselves in the shoes of the committee and try to see it also as a bit of a game and just, you know, keep your eyes on the goal. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're, you're aiming for and what is it that you're convinced of that needs attention? And I think that's, that's the combination, the balance you need to find. It's not just, you know, trying to tell them whatever they want mm -hmm. to hear. It's also showing them that you have an idea that they want to give you this this money for so it's it's finding that balance between between those two before you go Anika, i wanted to ask you about your experience so far of the ki prime fellows and we're only on really on on day one and first congratulations for for being here thank you what do you hope these three days will give you or if it's if it's anything um, similar to what already happened last night and this morning, I'm I'm um, I'm very happy. I'm super happy with uh, with how uh, how we're developing and what we're learning and what we're doing and how we're interacting. It's 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 so fantastic just to have this opportunity to be selected for it. Of course, it's it's daunting as well, but of course, already now you feel like we're so much in the same boat. We have the same experiences we have great differences but we we connect on so many different topics and levels and having the time to dive into that and and taking the space to think about where am i going what do i want to do how can i learn from others in doing so how can i perhaps also provide some help to others in doing uh, in trying to to achieve what we want to achieve and being part of this community, not just for these next couple of days, but for hopefully the rest of my career. Anik, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. The best of luck for your research. Thank you to everybody at home for listening. Please join us again next time. We'll be speaking to another KI Prime Fellow from 2022.